Emily Proctor calling you. <laughs> well, hi there. Good morning. How are you? I am just doing great. How about you? <laughs> well, I am doing so good now that I'm speaking with you today. Oh, aren't you kind? That is such a nice way to start my Monday. Thank you. Welcome to Hollywood and Beyond Podcast with Cincinnati host Stephen Brittingham. Experience meaningful and in-depth interviews with Hollywood's most interesting people. Enjoy the show. You can receive all the latest episodes of Hollywood and Beyond with Stephen Brittingham delivered to your favorite listening device by subscribing to the show on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or whatever happens to be your favorite podcast listening service. Don't miss out. Tune in. Hello there, everyone, or as I like to say, friends and listeners. This is your host, actor and writer, Stephen Brittingham. Welcome to Season 4 of Hollywood and Beyond Podcast. Truly grateful to be back in action as your host. Thank you for listening. Speaking of being grateful, I am honored to have one of television's most talented and finest leading ladies on the podcast. My special guest today is Emily Proctor. Known to millions of television viewers as Ainsley Hayes on NBC's The West Wing and, of course, as Detective Callie Duquesne on CBS's blockbuster hit CSI Miami. I almost feel like the, that theme song should kick in right now. Wouldn't that be nice if all of a sudden it was like, yeah! <laughs> That's right. And one of my favorite shows. And as Callie, Emily gave a strong and very appealing performance, much like the show itself, memorable. Today, Emily is leaving her mark with community efforts and by founding nonprofit Groundbreakers, Inc. I am looking forward to learning more about her amazing efforts to help those in need with encouragement and resources. If you can't tell by now, it is my honor and pleasure to have her join me today. Welcome to Hollywood and Beyond, Emily. Thank you so much. What a what a nice and lovely introduction. I um, whenever someone calls on me to introduce myself, and I actually have a, a new board that I'm on. I have a meeting tomorrow. If they say describe yourselves in two words, I'm going to say strong and appealing. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's well a, deserved. That's such, a, that's such a gracious introduction. I really appreciate it. Well, you are most welcome. Much deserved and completely sincere. It's such a pleasure to be speaking with you today. So thank you for this opportunity in advance. Thank you for having me. Of course, your listeners are going to be like, what is she drinking throughout the entire performance? <laughs> I'm drinking iced tea. <laughs> iced tea, one of my um, favorites. I know. I love homemade iced tea. And so I'm um, having it as I go because my throat gets so dry. This time of year in um, in L.A. is very hot and dry. So 
if anyone is like, what is that? It's iced tea. <laughs> <laughs> well, drink away. No problem at all. Uh, viewers can uh, often hear me drinking uh, coffee at times because my Ooh. coffee, Emily, is world famous. I just want to share that with you. Well, I'm, I'm glad to know. <laughs> I am not a coffee drinker or else I would ask you for the recipe. Well, if you ever become one, you just uh, hit me up and I'll share the secret recipe with you. Okay. <laughs> where should we start? What do you want to, where do you want to start? Well, let me tell you what. I thought we would start right at the beginning. Okay. The very David Copperfield beginning. <laughs> That's right. Absolutely. And you are from a state that is dear to my heart because I lived there briefly during the early 90s in Southern Pines, right next to Pinehurst, in oh North Carolina. I did some theater there. Uh, I had a wonderful experience, such nice people that I'm still friends with. So I thought I would ask you about exactly, you know, what life was like growing up in North Carolina. Well, I, I still consider North Carolina my home. Um, and I do still live there for part of the year with my daughter, Pippa. What I love about it is the the relationships I was able to have with the people there. Um, just very kind, very um, true. Um, I still have my same childhood best friend. We speak every day, and we are great, you know, just sort of steadfast friends for one another. Um and I just, I love the seasons there. It's, you get all of them, but they're very gentle. And um, I, I have high hopes for North Carolina. I just love it as a state. I think it's amazing. Well, that's a lovely description. Uh, thank you, Emily. And I remember those pine cones <laughs> that I had to rake up oh, in you the do? yard. Well, you were in Pinehurst. Yes, <laughs> yes. Or pine tops. You're pine tops, right? Uh, I was in Pinehurst. Actually, Southern Pines, to Southern be specifically. Pines. Yeah, because Pine Tops, I think, is closer to the beach. Gotcha, gotcha. I was near the golfers. I mean, folks there like to golf. I know exactly where you were, because <laughs> unfortunately, I ran into a pine tree there with my, my friend's dad's car. That is oh. another story. We should oh not go goodness. into it. I will say I hit some ice, but I was also very young and probably not the best driver then. <laughs> <laughs> they grow large and close to the road. Not a lot of shoulder. Oh, my. All right. I won't ask you for those details then. But, um, <laughs> the gory details are not important. And I was there during a snowstorm, if you can believe it or not, Emily, and everything shut down because I didn't have any snow trucks. Yes, no. <laughs> so that was a fun experience. Well, what did you like to do while you were growing up? Was there an activity or two in particular that stands out in your mind? You know, I think the funny thing about people is that things that you enjoy when you're really little, they tend to stick with you. And so one thing that I always did growing up was I would draw interiors of spaces. I would draw rooms. Um, anytime I would go to my friend's house, I would, you know, try to reimagine where their furniture goes. <laughs> <laughs> and that is something that I still do on a daily basis. I'm always yeah. working on an interior exterior space for myself or a friend. Um, I love it. And so when I think about home, I, I think, and being a child, I think that that was something that I did constantly with my time. But also, you know, it's different. It was different 
in the 70s than it is now. I didn't have all of these after-school activities. We ran around the neighborhood, and we played, you know, TV tag and flashlight tag and swam at the pool and um, those kind of things. I always remember being at the beach. It's a place that I still I still love mm. to this day. And, um, you know, and, and I, I did grow up, like, my after-school activity was dance, and that's also sort of carried through my life. Well, I love the beach myself, so I completely understand. It's just so good for the heart and soul and the mind. The big blue aspirin, that's what I call it. Oh, I like that. I'm going to remember <laughs> that. Th- yeah, that's, that's the best description ever. Get in. The big blue aspirin fixes everything. That should be a Jimmy Buffett song. Uh, you know, that, that would work. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, wow. it would. he probably feels that way. I think he does, most definitely. Well, thank you for sharing that. That, that That's just wonderful. Uh, I grew up in the 80s mostly, and um, it was just a wonderful experience, and um, that is wonderful. Now, I also learned something I never knew about you, Emily, and that is uh, of you being adopted, because I am adopted. Yes. Oh, are you really? I am, yes, by my grandparents. Okay. All right. I know it's a very unusual thing to say that you enjoy sharing with people, but I'm always really excited when I meet other people who are adopted. Um, Because I do think one of the most difficult things about the experience is you don't always have a way to talk about it, you know, because um, one thing I talked about with my daughter very early is that that life can live in a paradox. And there are many paradoxical experiences in our day um, and in our memory banks. And one thing I talked to her about is being adopted because I'm very close to my family. I love my family. My parents are my parents. And yet I'm aware that there are some other people out there that I don't know that I'm related to. And those things all have to live in the same bubble. Hmm. Um how about how about you? What is your experience of being adopted? Um, do you remember your mother and your father? Were they around? Um, how did that work for you? Well, thank you so much for asking. I really appreciate that. You know what is rather unique about my situation, or at least I think that it is unique, is that I was not told that I was adopted for several years. I actually thought my grandparents were my parents. So when I found out, it was a shock. I think that is a rough one. Was that rough? It was jarring. It yeah. was like, I still called them mom and dad. I still did not think of them as my grandparents. But the reality of the situation, it was a lesson, maybe my first lesson, that things are not often as they might appear. Well, that really affects your personal narrative. And... When I have had friends who have had adopted people, my first rule of of thumb is you don't you don't mess with someone's narrative. You share what you know, you share the information and and no one is too young to know their circumstance. But people really struggle. I don't know your grandparents' situation, but I have friends who really struggle with this information. And I'm like you are you are locking yourself in a cage when you're holding the keys. Just say it. Do you did your grandparents or your parents, excuse me, ever say why they felt like they couldn't tell you? 
Yes, um, you know, I didn't speak with my biological mother for years, and I only have actually seen her a few times. My biological father, so that's his side of the family that adopted me, he started coming into my life uh, after my grandfather passed away. He passed away when I was 11, Emily, so that was another shock for me. I'm sure that was really hard because that's losing your dad at 11. It is. And, and things changed. All my friends yeah. seem to have a dad. And maybe there was one divorce, you know, back in the 80s. It was kind of a new thing in a way. But uh, most of them had their dads. And I always felt like the odd one out. But yes, sure. I did have a relationship with him over the years. And I have no problem sharing this. It was addiction issues. It would have been... I was going to ask. Yes. Well, and... This is something we deal with a lot at the nonprofit, and the, such a large percentage of addiction issues really stem from unrecognized, untreated, and um, sort of buried mental illness, you know, people trying to level out. And yes. the human mind is a very complex and complicated machine, and we, in my opinion, do not, we tackle so many problems too late, you know, Yes. Like in Los Angeles, there's a lot of conversation now about the homeless issue. And what I keep trying to talk about is it's not all the same homeless population. There's a group of people who just are financially behind and not able to gain footing. And, as, and then it becomes a, you know, a snowball downhill. And then there's a large community of mental illness that has not gotten support and has created a, a, a hole in sort of like the base infrastructure of that person's life. And then you end up, you know, at a certain age without a concrete pathway. You know, school is finished. Maybe you missed your opportunity to get started in the job market and you have an addiction problem. And we really have to look at the homelessness issue from two different camps, from just someone who is financially behind and needs support getting back. And then people, it sounds like perhaps both of your parents, um, who were struggling in a mental health capacity and were trying to level out and just weren't able to. And it's tragic. It's very tragic. Well said. We, my my um, best friend that I talked about that I've had since we were a kid, her mother died of alcoholism when we were 15. And we talk about her mom a lot because in a different era, someone would have noticed sooner that, that she was not capable of sort of getting her emotional ship afloat. It wasn't staying afloat for her. Hmm. And what it would have looked like for her mom now. And, and it's such a tragedy. It is. It really is. And that was just so well said. And thank you for sharing your perspective. I totally back you up on all of that. You have such wonderful insight, Emily. Well, I'm just sorry, Stephen. I know that's really hard. It's really hard. Oh, well, I appreciate it. And you're right. I have to be honest. Um, the, the, the thing that I really learned after my grandfather or dad passed away was that once again, you know, things can happen in life without warning. You can lose someone. 
And that has stayed with me even to this day. Even at a young age, I appreciated the value of life and how precious it is and time spent with people you care about. Uh, That has stayed with me. And then over the years, I became uh, a person who felt very responsible for my grandmother. I always wanted to take care of her. I always wanted to be there for her. And that's basically what I did over the years. I mean, this is, so the work, I know we're going to talk about it later, but it seems like a a great place to sort of begin talking about it now. So Groundbreakers, um, Inc. I have to ask Inc. because (laughs) (laughs) there's there's trademarking issues. But um, what we do is we look at these sort of standard standard evolutions for people. And one of those evolutions is the, the poverty to prison pipeline. And we're hearing a lot about it now. But when you just look at, you know, your own evolution, of course that was going to happen, you know, because you have, you are aware you know, and one thing, like with, with my daughter, you know, she's 10. I'm always there. She has no other uh, awareness of me taking care of her. One day she's going to be like, oh, that was a lot of work. She doesn't <laughs> know that now, and it's a gift. But I think when you are adopted, you do have an awareness, or at least from my perspective, I feel I had an awareness that people were doing things for me. Like I was aware that I had landed in a good spot there was no sort of because you you know that there was an alternative you know I'm I'm living with this family but I also could have not been living with this family from a very early age family becomes very precious I think and then you have this situation and then you lose someone early you know you were sort of being written into a story that you would take care of the people that you loved fiercely because it felt different to you, the thought of not having them. Yes. Um, and these are conversations that I really hope start happening with younger people about emotions and feelings and, um, so people don't, so children don't make up their own answers, <laughs> you know? Yes, yes. Mental health is just, I, I think it's becoming more and more out in the open as something that we shouldn't shy away from, that we should start discussing and examining more for quality of life. Absolutely. It seems so strange to me that we, <laughs> that we, spend all of this time, you know, with our body health and our mental learning, and we should add a little more body learning and mental health in there to balance out our experience. Exactly. Yes, exactly. Very true. And, um, you know, I, I will share with you, Emily, that, you know, one of the things that I struggled with as I was growing up and became a young man that was like, wow, I think I might like to become an actor. <laughs> oh. um, it just, uh, I just always seemed to love the movies, television shows, the theater, and that's when the lights kind of came on. But I have to tell you, I struggled with guilt 
because I felt like I should be giving my grandmother more attention and not myself. It, it was a big struggle for me uh, over the years. Not her fault whatsoever. It was just how I felt. Well, because it's very hard not to, not to have that sort of typical um, codependent cycle happen for your mind. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's just that's what was going to happen for you based on, you know, the, the, the base structure of your human experience. Um, you, were, you, were going, you were going to feel um, overly responsible for that person. Well, I want to thank you again for even asking me. Thank you so much. I really appreciate that. And, and oh my gosh, I, I feel like I'm talking over you and your story is more compelling, but... Um, Please don't feel that way at all. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Having well, you on today is, um, you know, one of my highest joys as a host. Well, the one thing I would say to you, Stephen, as you move forward is, I just am so impressed that you were able to recognize that you were experiencing guilt around it and that it was, that was part of a challenge for you. Um, And I would also say, you know, from my perspective, guilt is such a useless emotion because you can act on it in a proactive way. So, you know, if you are feeling like you have not taken enough care of someone, you can really give yourself a checklist of, of caretaking. Have I done what is my standard of caretaking? And then anything that doesn't fall on that list, you know, th- when, I, when someone shared this sentence with me, it was a real eye-opener and it liberated me from a lot of those kind of feelings that I have myself. But um, that's not my problem. you know like sometimes things just aren't your problem (laughs) that's true and um you know and i feel this connection to you or with you i should say because of the whole adoption experience even if it was our own experiences it's just i think we kind of understand each other maybe in a way that people who aren't adopted might not be able to i think that's true that's i think that's very very true wow well, you sure did share so much, and you're helping others. Uh, you interview folks as well, and uh, who are uh, maybe dealing with uh, life after prison, for example. And Emily, I've mentioned this to you off the air, but wow, you do a wonderful job with your interviews, and you get the people to open up so nicely when you speak with them. Oh, thank you for saying that. I I've, I feel like I've been very lucky to interview um, some really kind-hearted people who've made very difficult transitions. Um, and I, I think people call it change. I like to call it transition. Transition <laughs> is hard for everyone. It you know, be, after yes. having a, a child, everyone always talks like, has your child transitioned to like one class to another, you know, starting school in this. And I thought, we <laughs> all struggle with transition. Are you kidding me? Mm-hmm. You get a new car and you're like, I'm happy to have a new car. This is amazing. I miss my old car. <laughs> you know, it's just, it is just part of how we work. And um, I feel very lucky to talk about transitions. And the, the so I've always been very interested in social service. I helped start an after-school program when I was in college. Um, 
my thing is I really enjoy people. And like you lit up with movies and theater and acting, ironically, I didn't. What I always found interesting was human behavior. And it, it allowed me, I think, to do a decent job acting. But my real interest is why do people do what they do? Um, why do we do things that are, you know, why do we make like bad habits or good habits? And when I became educated about the prison system, it just made me so aware of this sort of hole in our base community structure. And why I like to talk to people is, as a white woman, I, I, there's only so much that I have experienced about race. I only know what I know. It's like being adopted. You and I can talk about that all day long because we've had the experience. Um, I can't talk about racism because I've not directly experienced it. I can talk about sexism. Um, but my the only way for me to weigh in to encourage our growth as a country is to allow people who have experienced racism a, a place to, to talk about it, just to have conversations. And I think that unfortunately a lot of people that go through our um, anti-recidivism program and our program for currently incarcerated are people of color. And um, there's just some basic statistics I always like to share, and I think you might appreciate this as a, as a child who, who lived in a home other than your original home, which is there are 100 million Americans who are impacted by mass incarceration, and 10 million of those experience um, children, 10 million children in America experience parental incarceration. So if we think about our base family structure and what that kind of prison system is doing to work against us. And I, I wanted to get involved in that space because, you know, there are always going to be people who commit crimes, who are dangerous, who should absolutely have a place that is separate. Um, but there are so many people who could have gone through a treatment program um, or a work program and not be separated from their children. So that's what I hope we're able to do is to really address mental illness and all of the all of the many factors that lead people into damaging life patterns for multi multi generations, and then that's the work that I do now. And some people ask me about acting. It's not that I don't love it or that I wouldn't want to do it again. I just feel like I I should work where I have passion, and if there is passion, to sort of assist in any way that I can to making the generations behind us more fair, more equitable, um, with better opportunity, and to help sort of fill in the holes in our base, our base community structure that we never started with, then that's where I, I want to dedicate my time.
and you know, if if something comes along acting wise that that helps me do that, then I would do it. But, but I don't know that it ever will. <laughs> well, I sure hope it does for many reasons. Thank you. Thank and you. you are doing an outstanding job. I really respect and admire your efforts, and you're doing something that you're passionate about. And I will share this with you, Emily. When I first uh, reached out to you to invite you to be a, uh, my special guest today, when I went to your wonderful website, very appealing website. Oh <laughs> I've never been there. I hope it's okay. Oh, wow. Uh, I give it an A+. plus. <clears throat> Oh, good. All right. I will I will tell Dharma thank you. She she kind of makes sure it stays updated. Well, it's easy there. to navigate and it's like to the point but but it's very uh, a friendly atmosphere as well. It's a uh, very nice. Um oh, and good. the photo of you, you should look if nothing else to see that photo. Um excellent choice. You look absolutely uh beautiful in the photo. But I have thank to you. tell you I was so intrigued to learn about your community efforts and, and subjects like you just discussed. And when I reached out to you, I was just as excited to hear about all of that as I was about your accomplishments as an actress, just so you know. Thank you. Thank you. Well, since we've gotten kind of that part out of the way, what, what are you interested in in the, in the acting section? Well, let me... Um, ask you about this okay the moment when you decided to go you know i want to pursue this or give it a try at least and head out to to los angeles to hollywood was that an easy decision for you or did you really have to contemplate it well i through like just a tremendous amount of luck and um you know I don't know what uh, the tomfoolery is the wrong word, but luck and happenstance maybe. Um, when I was in college, when I was 19, I got a job as the weekend weather anchor uh, for the CBS affiliate, coincidentally, in my college town, which was Greenville, North Carolina. So by the time I was 19, I was working full time in sort of the real world and I thought I had originally gone to college and I wanted to be an interpreter. I wanted to be a Spanish interpreter. If I had been a better student and visited my advisor more, I probably would have learned early on that what I really wanted to be was a behavioral scientist. But um, oh, wow. I was busy having a good time and I never <laughs> learned what that was until a couple of years ago. And someone was like, Emily, did you not know this existed? And I was like, I did not. Um, but now this is what I wish I had been. You know, people were like, oh, I wish I'd been this. I wish I'd been that. I wish I had been a behavioral scientist. And um, I just, and I love why people do what they do. I, I yes. just, I love it. I'm fascinated um, by it too. Right? Um, so I was doing this job um, and starting to do a little bit of reporting and starting to get more responsibilities at work. And then starting to imagine what my future looked like in the news. And I had started to get offers from other stations and I was talking to people and they were like, you know, if you're, if you're really lucky, by the time you're 35, you're going to be in Detroit. Mm. And the <laughs> thing about, you know, they're like, I hope you get to see, you know, Cincinnati and then you can go here Where and I go am, there. In and, Cincinnati. Yeah. 
And I was plotting all of these courses, and I just thought, I'm never going to build any relationships. I'm not going to have time to see my family. Live television like that, live news television, is so demanding because, you know, in any kind of performing art, you always work when you're sick. You're, you're tired, you, you're, you work. You're hurt, you work. You're sick, you work. And that's not just the people in front of the camera. It's the people behind the camera as well. But with acting and things like that, you can lie down in between takes, you know. <laughs> you can see if someone will cover a scene for you. And live news television, you can't. And um, I missed so many weddings and so many birthdays oh and so many family events. And I just started to think, this is not sustainable. This is not, this plus moving, you know, is not going to be the life that I would choose for myself. So, Just too hectic, um, it sounds like. <laughs> yeah, it's just, it's just too rootless. Mm-hmm. And, um, and there are people who do that and do it so well, but it was not going to be the right choice for me. And, um, so, and I also weirdly, I've never really felt too self-conscious about acting. I don't like the red carpet stuff about it, but, um, I felt very self-conscious when I was in the news and I was out in public. I just had Mm. like a, a incredibly self-conscious. Um, was it like anxiety that you would feel like on the inside? I think it was a version of imposter syndrome, you know, because I felt like Mm. I needed to know all the news when I would be out. Like if anyone, like I needed to be like a Google person, if someone Mm. wanted to be like, what is happening here? I needed to have the answer. Of course, that's not realistic and nobody does. But that for me is how I felt when I was doing the news and acting. It's like, you know. I'm not a crime scene investigator, so anything that I happen to know, I'll gladly share with you because you and I both know that I'm not an expert in the crime scene investigation. Um, but I was watching the, I was at work late one night and I was watching the feed and there was a CBS sitcom on. And I remember thinking, how hard can that be? That can't be that hard. This checks all the boxes. I know how to work in television. I can work really hard because I I love to like really, really work. Um, I can work really hard and then I can have some vacation. I can live in a big city, which is what I wanted, but I'll have time to come home and visit. This is what I want to do. And I told my family and they just sort of like blinked at me like, you must be crazy. Um, And I made a couple of phone calls. One was to Sharon Lawrence who is an actress from Raleigh, and she told me, um, don't go to New York. There's no work here. Everyone's going to Los Angeles. And so I said, okay, and I had a friend of mine who was a flight attendant bring home a paper, and we looked at, you know, apartments, and she picked one out, and and I convinced my roommate at the time at college to move with me, and we went to Los <laughs> Angeles. And it was about, I don't know, about a, a month and a half, it took wow. me about two weeks to think about it, and then I gave the station a month's notice. Mm. And sort of this weird, funny, quirky thing is that I, I didn't want to not have something to do so that I would overthink about it. So I started this needlepoint pillow, 
And I sort of obsessively <laughs> would needlepoint this pillow when, like, people would come to say goodbye or, like, I'd have oh. some downtime. And on the plane out to Los Angeles, I got it to where I only have one corner left. And I thought, I'm going to needlepoint this pillow. So I have something nice. When I live in Los Angeles, I'll just have this one nice thing. I'll have this pillow. And I got to Los Angeles, and I never finished it. And I still have it. And it has been folded up for now, I guess, almost 30 years. Oh, wow. <laughs> like, now I'm afraid to finish that pillow because I'm like, I don't know. I should probably not finish that pillow. <laughs> um, but it was not, it was a very active decision. It's like once it was made, things were just moving forward. And did you experience a lot of homesickness when you first arrived? Um, I did. Yes, I but, did too. Yeah. What was it like for you? I was so excited. The first morning, I had two roommates who were also actors. We were in Glendale, Emily, my first time in Los Angeles. And they said, what are you doing? I said, oh, I'm, I'm getting my headshots and resumes together. I was stapling them together. You know how the old days when you would send oh, them yeah, out? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And they said, aren't you going to kick back and relax a while? I'm like, well, I don't think I'm going to do that right away. <laughs> but a few days later... Suddenly, the reality of where I was and how massive this city was started to weigh in on me. And then that, like I shared with you earlier, I felt guilty that I've left mom alone with her being older, of course. And um, once I got past that, I got myself back on track. But yes, I did go through that phase for sure. I think it was, I got very lucky in that I moved, I didn't move directly into the city. I moved to Hermosa Beach first. Oh, okay. And I think it was, you know, it was kind of like a halfway step. If I had moved to Glendale, I don't know that I would have survived because I was living in a place where people were like, the movie business? What? <laughs> you know, and I did a whole lot of roller skating. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's fun. And then I'm... I met uh, I met a guy at a like a backyard barbecue uh-huh. who was an extra, and he was like, "Oh, I have an extras agency," and I can't oh. believe I'm not going to remember the man's name. Charlie, what was his name? Oh my gosh, I can't believe I've forgotten the name of the extras agency. But he, hmm. I think it's Charlie. But and he's like. It's like, I have, an, I have an agent for being next to her. And I was like, oh, my gosh, that is just so fancy. <laughs> and he said, well, I'll, I'll introduce you. And I was like, okay. And I went, and they handed me a sheet of paper. And on it, you just had to check the clothes that you had. It was like, do you have a long dress? Yes. Do you have a tennis racket? Yes. Do you have, you know, some sailing clothes? Yes. It was like every – it was basically like, what kind of costumes do you have? And, I mean, I was a girl from North Carolina. I had all of them. And then I had come with all of them. I'm like, yes, you I have all of these things. <laughs> and so I got a job starting that next week on Herman's Head. Nice. And I became a regular Tuesday extra on that show. And I think about it all the time. I got paid $45 for eight hours of non-union work. Wow. And they would sort of like segregate the union background and the non-union background. Like I remember... I remember just like how humiliating it was to be non-union background in the 90s because 
they wouldn't give you a place to sit. You had to bring your own chair. I didn't own a folding chair because I didn't move out with one of those. I was making $45 for eight hours of work, so I couldn't afford a folding chair. And I didn't want to call my parents and say, I need a folding chair and I can't afford it, because they would be like, what are you doing? Come home. So <laughs> I, um, and, you, and a lot of times, if, if they had put you in any sort of a costume, you couldn't sit down. If they were your own clothes, you could kind of make an argument for sitting down on the ground. But if not, you just had to stand there. And I remember one time on this movie, I was dressed in this costume, and it was really hot, and I couldn't sit down. And, you know, the union actors had all of this really nice food on their craft service table, and we had M&Ms and saltines. And um, I just started crying because it just felt so humiliating. And someone said to me, why are you crying? And I didn't want to to be like, this is humiliating. Don't you see this? This It's humiliating. (laughs) Can't you figure this out? (laughs) And um, and so I was like, my mom died. (laughs) And they were like, oh, my God, your mom died. I was like, yeah. I mean, it just came out. And and then... um, (laughs) But, but that it was just something that came out. Chair. It wasn't real, right? It was just a... No! And then I had to tell my mom, I'm like, Mom, I'm so sorry. Oh I told goodness. someone you died today. It just came out. I don't know. I'm really stressed out. <laughs> she was like, Emily, don't tell me why I'm dead. Um, <laughs> but it, it kind of like lit a fire under me because I was like, this mm-hmm. this is this is not going to work. And I got really lucky. I believe Peter Schindler is his name. Um, I know his first name is Peter. Let me look. Sure, go right ahead. Um, These are wonderful stories, Emily. That is something else. And just think how far you've come. That's just um, really something else to me. So, yes, Peter Schindler was nice enough to ask me if I wanted to audition for a role and it was a pilot. My line was a carton of eggs, <laughs> and it's how I got my SAG card. And oh, he asked me, wow. like, do you have your card? And I had gotten three vouchers for me to get um, a my card, my SAG card. I had gotten three union vouchers for work that I had done. And when you went up to union work as an extra, you got $100 for eight hours. So it was like a really nice bump when you got that. Um, And um, I said yes, because I knew if I did his job, then I would have my fourth voucher and I would have my SAG card. But it turns out that wasn't how it worked. And I remember he was like, Emily, why didn't you (laughs) tell me you didn't have your SAG card? And I was like, I'm so sorry. Um, It's like, I thought that this counted, you know, it's like when you're young and you're just (laughs) trying to figure things out. Um, But, but that was Sally Steiner was the casting director and um, he was the producer and they really set me on that next part of my path that just was lots and lots of, you know, time invested. um, Absolutely. Well, one of my first extra roles in LA, Emily was on the NBC television movie Unsolved. It was Unsolved Mystery Movies. Uh, it was uh, Victim of Love, the Shannon Moore story, starring Dwight Schultz. And I Were got to, you a union or non-union? I was non-union, but it was a nice set. They had 
food everywhere. Uh, it felt union, but I was not union. And um, and NBC was behind it, so I'm not really sure I how that worked. I might be a little bit older than you. Maybe that's the thing. It might have changed a little bit. Well, but, I'll be honest with you. I turned the big five zero on August 22nd of this year. Ooh, happy birthday. <laughs> yeah, well, I do you. think, I think like in that short amount of time, because I'm two years oh. older than you, but I'm about to be three years older than you. And I think in that short amount of time, the, um, our union then was really strong. Gotcha. Um, I think that, that they, they, they made some things. They're like, you can't force people to stand for eight hours. <laughs> Oh, yes, it was a it was a long day. But, um, you know, what's interesting, Emily, is I'll share two quick things with you. Um, I was playing a bartender at a wedding. Right. And Mm -hmm. uh, I'm in several shots here and there during the opening moments of the movie before the credits. And the director said, would you please uh, walk behind the main characters? It would be Shannon Moore herself. And uh, at this moment. And during rehearsal, I noticed that Dwight Schultz was saying, you know, asking her, what's her name? And she says, Shannon Moore. And I thought, I'm going to time it to where when she says that, I'm walking behind her. And guess what? It worked. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, so every time I see that shot, I go, well, that's because I was uh, paying extra attention. And they invited me to film all night as one of the deputies to arrest Dwight Schultz character. Unfortunately, the shirt was too small. So that's one Ah. of those bummer stories as far as how it ended. But um, very grateful for the opportunity. And your story is even way more better. That's just something else. Those were were good times. (laughs) Those were good times. Now, Emily, before we get to CSI Miami, I would like to bring up one of your earlier projects, if you don't mind. Because I remember it pretty well. Uh, Who would have known that years later, you know, you would go on to be um, such a big star, so to speak. Um, And that was on Friends. I believe it was season two, maybe episode two. Where was I in the HBO reunion? I was on I mean, where were you? Nobody called me and said, hey, come back. I still have, I was wearing my own clothes in that episode because they gave me an extra $20 for that. I still have that red plaid jacket. I can just Uh, put it on. It won't zip, but I will put it on and and wear it to the HBO special. But nobody called me. Nobody called you. Uh, Wasn't it Annabelle? Are you kidding me? Character's name, Annabelle, I, I believe. I don't remember. And Joey was at the department store as the cologne sprayer. You know, mm-hmm. trying to sell it. And I think it was uh, Bichon for Men's, Bichon for Men's. And, and you came in a few scenes, and obviously Joey wanted to take you out, I think, for coffee. And there was another guy dressed up as a cowboy that kind of won And that you other over. guy went to the same college I did. He was actually a twin, and they both went to ECU. Did they um, really? Yes, isn't that funny? Now, Emily, if you don't mind me backtracking about ECU. Mm-hmm. Here I am in Cincinnati, and one of my all-time favorite quarterbacks, because he, he played with such heart, was Jeff Blake. Oh, yeah. Wasn't he great? Oh, my goodness. Were you there while he was playing? I think I, think I had one year of Jeff Blake. I definitely oh knew goodness. him and was very aware of him. Let me just double check. Wow. When he arrived to Cincinnati sitting on the bench... 
and things were going downhill, and he came in the game in the third quarter against the Cowboys, no less, and almost won, and he got the starting job after that. I've never forgotten how much heart and passion he played with. Yeah, we, we overlapped um, at okay. two seasons. <laughs> That's amazing. Well, I had to ask you about Jeff Blake, so um, I'm glad I got to sneak that in there. <laughs> Priorities. That's right. But what was it like being on Friends? Did you, um, anything interesting besides all of that, or you just kind of showed up and did your job, so to speak? Um, I, I, I mean, it was a very exciting show, mm-hmm. and just sort of, you know, being aware of what things were like for that cast at the time. And I showed up right as they had sort of banded together to get stronger pay. And they were really, they really worked well as a team. Mm -hmm. I remember Lisa Kudrow and Matt LeBlanc being very outwardly kind to me and making sure that they came over and introduced themselves and were very nice. nice. I really appreciated that. They were, they were nice people. Well, you gave Um, a really appealing performance. I remember it well. You were just all smiles and, uh, <laughs> it's just, it's just I, I just remember that well. It's just uh, Matt LeBlanc. He's just so funny, uh, spraying that yeah. cologne everywhere. And um, well, let me see, Emily. If we uh, move on to CSI Miami, but first I have to say, of course, you appeared on NBC's The West Wing. I know you have a tremendous amount of fans from your time on that show. I uh, believe between 2000 2002, if I have that right. And I told you off the air. So I can tell the listeners now, that is a show that slipped through my fingers, so to speak. And I'm looking forward to one day watching the series and seeing you on that show. Um, So that is kind of why I don't have many questions. But I did want to ask at least this. I assume working with such a talented cast and so many talented people, different ages, and all of that good stuff, that must have been really a huge benefit as you prepared to be on another show with, with you know, a talented cast. Because I think of CSI Miami as a team show. Well, it, it, that's so funny, because what I was going to say is West Wing holds up because it's such a team show. Oh, okay. Um, <laughs> well, we're thinking alike then. Yeah, it, <laughs> Uh, it, it is Aaron does such a good job of writing team and it always just sort of inspires or in me. Uh, I think it probably inspires other people too to, to, to work as a team. Um, oh yes. I mean, it was, it was like horrifically intimidating and super thrilling. And um, I couldn't have been with a nicer, more welcoming group. You know, I think there would have been a lot of huge, shows to walk on to and not have it work out as well for for me to to join um so i i love my west wing experience i still i still am in touch with aaron and, and we we play chess although i'm trying to get him to move into gin but he's not having it oh, you okay. know he's got to move into gin so we can <laughs> we can play cards um well, I can't but, wait to see it, and I certainly can't wait to see you on it. I've heard so many wonderful things. It, it holds things. up. It's a show that holds up. Yeah. Um, you could watch it now, and it, you you wouldn't. It doesn't look dated, or you know, things like that. Well, how did the audition or opportunity arrive for CSI Miami? 
Was it business as usual, so to speak, where you just you did the audition and you got the part, or was there a story behind that? Well, I really didn't want to leave the West Wing. I was having a great time there, and I felt like I had friends, and I loved my character, and it became clear that I wasn't going to stay on the show permanently, and you know, your representatives do their job in those moments and they go out and they ask around, is is anybody looking for for something that she might be right for? And um, I remember driving out to meet with um, Ann Donahue and Carol Mendelson and Anthony and uh, Sam, I can't remember Sam's last name, out to Santa Clarita. And I sat down in their offices and we just talked and then they invited me to, to join the show and it hadn't been written yet. I think I was the first person they, that was on the show. Um, in fact, oh, I know wow. I was. They hired David after and um, then it just sort of snowballed from there. But um, it was just one of those things. I remember I was driving down Beverly at Fairfax and I had my mom and my stepdad in the back seat and I pulled over to get some gas, and I got back in the car, and I said, I've been offered a television show. They're doing a spinoff of CSI. And um, I remember I had mixed emotions about it because the original CSI cast really wanted to enjoy their moment in the spotlight, as, you know, I can understand why they felt that way. And so... And and now, of course, it just seems totally commonplace. It's like, why would you have not made a two and a three and a four and a five? But that wasn't really happening. That's right. Yet. It was a different like uh, time, so to speak. I mean, you guys were the first spinoff. I mean, did you feel any pressure? Or did the cast ever feel any pressure in the early days? Like, we have big shoes here to fill, so to well, speak. Well, it kind of felt like you were, you were, you know, taking the first dance at someone else's wedding, you know? Mm. And, and, um... Now you, no one would feel that way, but back then it was just such a new idea. And there again, it's it's a transition. There was a transition for yes. what television was going to look like. And um, so I was. I remember saying to my parents, like, I don't know how I feel about this. You know, I know I'm hearing that the cast is unhappy that this is happening, and um, and I remember my stepdad saying, Emily, a job is a job. He's like do you need a job? And I was like, I do. And he said, then take the job. And I was like, you're right. So for me, in a lot of ways, there was a lot of, of job quality to CSI Miami. It was a, it was a moment of growing up of like, okay, this is a job. You know, I need a job. I'm taking a job. And that's when I first discovered you, Emily, uh, was that, wow, who is this Southern Belle on CSI Miami? <laughs> I just was, uh, uh, you were one of my favorite characters, for sure. I enjoyed your performance so much. Well, you must have felt the adoption vibe. Maybe I did, like, and I just didn't know it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and you know, Emily, I have to say that now we can say, for sure, after you get past those early stages of starting that show, is that CSI Miami is definitely its own show, Atmosphere. So colorful. Uh, you know, on HD televisions in particular, or 4K televisions, it's currently on Paramount Plus, for example. 
I mean, it looks beautiful. The ocean, I look like I could jump in it. So uh, seeing it again after all these years, it's just like a new experience. I'm enjoying it so much. Um, and of course, your character, a ballistics expert. And you know, I can't wait to ask you about a few moments on the show, but let me uh, ask you this. I found your character to be very professional and uh, she was spot on with her, her responsibilities, but I always felt that Callie was still very compassionate. And I think that she thought karma had something to do with people's fates at times. Oh, I don't know. Or do you have a different I, I, perspective? Well, my perspective of it was always, I wanted, it seems like a very black and white show, very good guy, bad guy show. And I don't think anything is ever like that. I wanted to bring some gray into it. So mm-hmm. I tried to bring as much gray in as possible to try and see where we could understand what was happening instead of just being judgmental about what was happening. I, I had like a problem that. with that, with the show. It felt very judgy to me. And I didn't <laughs> <see it. laughs> well, so I understand that, what you're saying. Yeah, that's, uh, you don't want it to be just, you know, A or B, and that's it. Because you and I both know life is much more complex than that. You know, good people yeah. can make mistakes, but bad people, of course, can keep being bad. Let, let me just say how I feel about that. Absolutely. Every single person makes mistakes, and we make them all the time. All the time. Um, it is other circumstances that support how those mistakes play out for us. I will, I, will, I will pour concrete in a hole and put my flagpole in it and then cover it with boulders. Everyone makes mistakes all the time. It Absolutely. Just and and I can attest to life. that. <laughs> yeah. Of course, we all have. Yes. That's, that, is, that is the gift of being human. You get all of the emotions. You, get, you come with the full package. Some people get... Get less than some. <laughs> yes. One thing that really impressed me about your performance from an acting standpoint, right? Like the craft of acting is that you could be really intense in a subtle way through your eyes. Um, I think what's coming to mind is those scenes where people were, you know, not sympathetic or uh, felt bad for what they did. Those type of characters. And maybe they were mocking you as you're interrogating them. And just to look in your eyes and how you responded. You didn't have to yell or shout at them. You just said how it was and sometimes got up and walked out. But I really noticed you spoke so much with your eyes. And, and just wanted to commend you on that. Well, thank you, Stephen. I will tell you what, what Barry O'Brien, who was a writer on the show, and I called that. Yes, please. We called it Alpha Cat. So oh. I had this cat named Kevin that I love, and I had read this book about, and I had gotten Kevin when when his eyes were still closed and he didn't have any fur, and um, they had there had been a, a feral beach cat that had had kittens in my neighbor's house, and she wasn't coming back to feed them, so we pulled them out, and we bottle-fed them and found homes for all of them, except I could not part with this one cat. And so I read all of these books about, like, how do you raise a cat like you're a cat? Because I didn't want to be, like, <laughs> you know, as an adoptive parent at that point, I wanted to do the best by my, by my cat child. <laughs> so, um, And the way I disciplined him was, 
you know, you hear people like spray bottle or you know, like, you know, swat out, swat at them or something. I just would stare at my cat if it did something that I didn't want to do, <laughs> like scratch up the furniture, you know, act, you know, relentlessly yes. terrible. <laughs> I would just stare and at worked? my cat really hard, and it worked. And oh, so, wow. <laughs> Barry and I used to laugh about it all the time because I was like, "That's awesome." An alpha cat situation. Isn't it funny where we get our inspiration um, (laughs) for for things? uh, Emily, I love cats. I had a cat that lived to be 21. My Kevin lived to be, uh, he was 21, so I was (gasps) almost 22. Oh, my goodness. Well, we have something Uh, else in common. We do. (laughs) Well, thank you. you, Thank you for calling out Alpha Cat. I think it's a pretty good technique. but I think so, too. Well, Emily, I would love to ask you a question. I don't know if anybody has ever brought this up. Maybe they have, but I've never heard it discussed by anybody. So maybe it's just my personal reaction, so to speak, or or thought process. But you know those catchy one-liners that that Horatio would say on just about every episode, especially mm-hmm. before the opening credits. But as a reminder, sometimes throughout the episode, uh, if there was a certain specific moment... And yes, they're catchy. I get all that. But I always felt like there was something lingering about those comments. And then I thought about it. The moments when he said it. For example, someone kind of mockingly saying, Oh, yes, you please let me know when you find out that information. And, and Horatio would often say, for example, You'll be the first to know. And walk away. And I thought to me, It's like if the voice of justice, right, the voice of justice could respond at those moments, I feel like that's what would be said. Well, I I think David deserves a tremendous amount of credit. I think those one-liners, he came up with a lot of them himself. Oh, wow. I did not know that. I think it really set us apart because it gave us a different tone for the show. Yes. And um, and it, it made it like a little lighter. And he took a tremendous amount of flack for like the taking on and off of the sunglasses and the one-liner, huh. one-liners. But they were a huge part of the show. I agree. And I think they helped make it very successful. So yeah, I have no issues with that. He deserved all the credit. It was his call and... And I think it was the right one. Well, I would love to ask what it was like working with him. But if I could add quickly, one of the things I loved about David's performance is often how the show would end with this heartfelt music. And maybe it's like a time for reflection or maybe someone lost hope and he's there offering encouragement that, hey, we're going to get through this together despite what happened. I I mean, I guess you can tell, Emily, I'm a emotional person but so many times it just made me teary-eyed and uh, what was it like working with with David throughout the show I think David and I had a very good understanding of each other and we worked well together he had very specific ideas about how he wanted to do things and just like any team it can be hard to often understand the nuances of what another person wants but he and I managed to navigate that well and we and we had a good time together um 
you know, and I, I give him a lot of credit for, for really strong choices that he made that I think made the show very successful. Thank you for sharing that. And was this filmed mostly in Miami? No, no. Uh, we all had uh, T-shirts and hats that said uh, CSI Long Beach. That's ah. pretty much where we worked. <laughs> wow, wow. Gotcha. Some in Miami. It was fun when we got to go to Miami, but that wasn't often. And was this a five- or six-day work week for one episode? I'm just curious at that time. Uh, what, what were we doing? I think initially we were doing eight-day episodes, and we found that we were only getting about six weeks hiatus, and everybody was really tired because we were also doing 24 episodes a year. Um, and then we started doing double-up days. So we got it down to, I think, six, seven-day episodes, and um, everyone would double up at the beginning, at the end. So we were running two crews simultaneously, and, you know, for the actors, you might, you would typically start on one episode and then end the day on another, but sometimes you would switch episodes back and forth. Um, so, you know, it was fun. It was, it, it was it like was fun. a relay race. You know, we discussed earlier about my situation with adoption, and there was many times that I saw my biological dad struggle in person. And your scenes with John Hurd, who portrayed your father on the show, you know, a character that struggled with alcoholism, you just really did such a, a wonderful job. I was always so touched with those moments. And... Unfortunately, has passed away not too long ago, and I just wanted to know if you had any thoughts about your time working with him and those type of scenes as well. You know, it's funny. I think about John a lot um, because obviously he was an actor that I knew because he had some really great work that I had been a fan of before he came to be my dad on CSI Miami. And when he died... I'm a terrible social media person. Um, I didn't, so I don't, I'm not very good about always like weighing in on things that I guess people would normally weigh in on with social media who are better at it. But I didn't even say anything about it because I just felt like our relationship was very personal and very intimate. And I always question if people didn't, realized that I felt that way about him hmm. because I didn't say anything about it. Wow. But um, I can respect that, yes. Very personal yeah, relationship. It was just a, you know, he brought a lot to that part, and he was very kind. He sure did. And I wish he had been on the show more. Really I agree. Did. I agree. Well, that was a beautiful... Um, I want to say thank you for spending so much time with me. I mean, how lucky am I? Oh, Stephen, you're so kind. Thank you. I wish I'd heard more of your story. Thank well, you for sharing. Well, I hope you will come you back did. someday and we can do a part <laughs> two. <laughs> yes. Emily, uh, thank you from the bottom of my heart. I think you're a, a wonderful lady. All right. I appreciate that. Thank you so much. Thank you for, um, for talking to me about all of those, you know, walks down memory lane. Callie. Boy, I feel like I just got a get-out-of-jail-free card. 
It's not free this time, Dad. Give me your car keys. My car keys? What for? Maybe I can't keep you from drinking, but I can keep you from driving. I'll take you home, but I want to say goodnight to somebody first. blood. Good night. Hi, friends and listeners. This is host Stephen Brittingham. Do you happen to have a question or a comment for me? Or perhaps you feel that you might make an interesting guest here on Hollywood and Beyond. Whatever your reason may be, please feel free to contact me anytime directly at the show's official email address. That would be Hollywood and Beyond Show at gmail.com. That is Hollywood and Beyond Show at gmail.com. I look forward to hearing from you soon.